Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. Each week, I ask my guests what they do differently that sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful. In this episode, I talk with Elizabeth Eintema of the Dance Data Project about moving the stodgy, conservative global industry of ballet with a tiny team of dedicated part-timers and volunteers by staying flexible, listening actively. Welcome to The Indispensables. I'm Bruce Tolgan, and today I have Liza Eintema. She's president and founder of the Dance Data Project, but wait till you hear her story. She's a lawyer. She's a martial artist. She's got a lot going on. Uh, Liza, welcome to The Indispensables. Hey, Bruce. Thank you so much. I'm absolutely delighted to be here and really honored. Oh, it's 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 my honor. It's our honor. Uh, people are going to really love uh, to hear about your story. So what is your story? So obviously the story is still evolving. Um, but if we started right now, I am 62-year-old transplant from Cambridge, Massachusetts, still trying to figure out the Midwest. Kids are up and gone. I'm a grandmother, but this is the best time of my life right now. It all is starting to make sense. And I think all the disparate trends, all the skills that I've developed have come together on the project that I'm working on now, Dance Data Project. And uh, are you a lifelong uh, dancer? I started out as a skinny little ADD, like, you know, ball of energy. And unusually, both of my parents worked. We can talk about that in a little bit. I... um, bunch of strong women in my family, but I think they sort of didn't know what to do with me. And martial arts didn't exist then, which probably would have been perfect. So they threw me into ballet class. And I don't know if you've ever done one, Bruce, you probably should at some point if you're a serious martial artist, but they're exhausting. Um, And it's a really effective way to uh, kind of run a kid into the ground. Sort of the same theory, by the way, as Ashtanga yoga, which was to take, you know, uh, bouncing off the walls, Brahmin boys, and calm them down enough so they could meditate. But but you are very systematic, and and I know you have a an eclectic background. But it sounds like uh, every single thing you've done has been a building block. A couple of folks have said about me that I have this uncanny uh, willingness to reinvent myself, and hopefully, I'm not starting over each time. But I think as I've as I've gotten older my choices have made more sense, not less sense. But I I, I also phrase myself as a reluctant entrepreneur. Um, I spent three years trying not to start Dance Data Project because there are way too many not-for-profits out there. We can run through the numbers, but um, for example, Crane's Chicago Business did an excellent piece in 2015 and said that by their calculation, about a third of the not-for-profits in the Chicagoland area shouldn't exist. They're redundant, and they also um, strip services, you know, the resources that should go to whatever their state of mission is are instead going towards staffing, et cetera. So, you know, I I do a lot of studying. I listened. um, I looked around. I tried as hard as I could to find somebody else who was already uh, addressing the problem I wanted to address. And I, I, one of my big beefs about not-for-profits these days is that everybody wants to start their own. It's sort of a vanity project and a branding thing. You know, this is my disease or this is my problem. 
and I think I think a lot of time and energy and resources that are better deployed get wasted. But sadly, or not sadly, nobody else was tackling the problem that I wanted to solve. How 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 did you fail at not starting it? The problem that I wanted to address, I, I did do ballet as a little girl. And when I started going back to the theater, my kids got a little bit older. I had one of those aha moments where you can't unsee it. And I'm sure a lot of us have had that, um, where I'm sitting in the theater and it's this gorgeous, massive theater in Chicago. If you watch our interview series, which is Global Conversations, the opening in my interview for round five is in there. So it's one of these glories of American architecture. It's one of the first to incorporate lighting into the um, into the actual architecture, lots of firsts. And I'm sitting there and I'm looking at the stage and then I look down at the program book and this had happened a number of times and it gradually occurred to me, 70% of the audience was female, 70% of the donor base is female. It is the most female of the performing arts. At every level, women supported economically. And then you look in the program book, right? It's all women in terms or or female driven in terms of the donations that put the work on the stage. But we've since learned that um, over 70% of the ballet shown in the United States classically derived work are done by men. Two thirds of the time, you would never see a single work by a woman, which is quite extraordinary. Um, And uh, what most folks don't realize is that the arts sector in the United States is bigger than construction, transportation, warehousing, travel and tourism, mining utilities, and agriculture. So we are talking a honking lot of money here, which is going to a, a very, very small um, group of people. And the so what is that we see rapidly declining audiences, right? They're getting older. They've remained very, very white. And it's essentially they're going to the, the current model is going to run out of runway very soon. It doesn't shock me that uh, the arts as an industry, if you look at it that way, is monumental in terms of its revenue or its uh, productive capacity. I always think, I mean, I'm a huge uh, fan of the arts. I, I practice martial arts, which I think of as an art, but I think of the arts as being one of the most fundamentally human things. And so I'm really glad that there's so much action, um, but I'm intrigued by your take on it. I don't know if you heard the episode we did with Stephanie Ibarra, who runs a, a Baltimore stage. You know, she's really concerned about um, the lack of diversity in theater. I'm guessing it's there's a greater lack of diversity in dance. Um, but, but, but it's, so you've been actually a dancer, so you're an artist per se. So you're drawn to it both as an artist, but now it sounds like as a citizen, uh, as an observer, as somebody who wants to do good. Boy, I hope so. Um, yeah, I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm still dancing. I don't know if that happens to you. My husband, um, like still dreams about dunking a basketball. I think the best I've ever seen is him getting a couple of finger joints over, but he's calling it dunking, so I'll call it dunking. But yeah, to your point, so so we are coming out of the pandemic, and we are, everybody uses this word, I apologize, but it really, I think it really is true. It is a pivotal moment for us in so many ways as a country, as a democracy. What do we want to look like? Who do we want to be? And to your point, how do we want to see ourselves on the stage? Right? And I do think actually that theater has done a much better job in confronting 
some of these issues. And there's been some very, very effective organizing by playwrights, by actors, etc. But I would say both in opera and in ballet, which are the two bottom of the tier, opera sits actually below any kind of dance, not just ballet. Um, they're the oldest, the audiences are declining, I think, Opera's 1% or 3%. So many questions are coming up in terms of access. So just as we can think about who's who gets housing or um, you know what the tax code should look like, we really should be thinking about what we want to do as citizens, as you say, with the performing arts in the United States. And I'll give you one small example, our corner of the world. So nobody had done this research until we started putting it together. And it's expanded way past the spreadsheet that I started in 2015 at my kitchen table. So we looked at the largest 50 classically based companies in the United States and their aggregate budgets for 2019, which was the most recent available year, were about two thirds of a billion dollars. So that's not peanuts. The next 50 below that were 7% of that top 50. So you see funding, resources, attention drop off a cliff. And of the largest 10, they took up over 60% of that three quarters of a billion dollars. So essentially what you have is an artistic oligopoly. And I think you'll see that reflected throughout the performing arts. And when you read about, listen to the big, big foundations, they admit that they give money based on size, which of course means the big are gonna get bigger. Back in the day, right? So whether it's the WPA coming out of the depression, the Writers Project, which you probably know about, which um, New York Times has just covered, but even into things like building out infrastructure or local arts projects, there was a real push to get education resources out into rural areas, out into less resource areas. And we're failing at that now. And I think that's a real problem. One of the things that, that we've been, I've been connecting is that there are 50% fewer daily newspapers in the United States now than there were 20 years ago. I mean, that's a pretty extraordinary statistic. And that means that in smaller towns where there used to be at least one newspaper, there isn't. And that has all sorts of implications. But in terms of the arts, and I'm thinking right now of the sad story of the Chicago Tribune here, um, Alden Capital buys it, and what they do is they gut, right? So people take buyouts, but the first thing that goes are the arts, and within the arts, the first thing that goes is dance. Back in the day, I mean, I'm older than you, but you know, you'd open up and open up your daily newspaper, you'd see a review of a dance performance. Hey, maybe we want to go to that, or at least you know you'd read it, and it was more than a paragraph long, so you at least have some shared vocabulary with everybody, some sense of here's what's happening. This might be interesting. We're losing that. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'm with you. The Berkshire Eagle is uh, the, the paper in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, in the Berkshires where, where I grew up. And uh, in the Berkshire Eagle, you would see, you know, Jacob's Pillow was a, a primary character in, in anything, you know, it was, there was a whole part of the paper. It wasn't Tanglewood. It was not, it wasn't just Williamstown. It wasn't just the Stockbridge Theater Festival. We had Jacob's Pillow. 
and and it was considered important. Uh, it's a, a ballet uh, dance, all dance, not just ballet. Yeah, no, and it, and it was um, it was considered revolutionary at the time. And of course, there is a, a woman founder involved, et cetera. And it continues to be today one of the bright lights. There are a few opportunities for new work to be seen, um, but but to your point. Um, you know, if you make it to Jacob's Pillow, if you make it even to, I think there's a Nantucket or Martha's Vineyard, I think it's Nantucket dances or a Spoleto, the critics will come. There's a reason for them to be there. It's kind of like scouting camp for, you know, minor league baseball or a combine, right? If you want to make it in the NFL, the agents will come, um, the critics will come, and there's an opportunity to get seen and get reviewed. And who knows? But think about the winnowing process. Think about how many great companies never get there everybody's submitting videos, et cetera. And the problem is, is that there, there should be a lot more Jacob's pillows. The other side of it is that the critics. So imagine if you had baseball scouts, NFL scouts, et cetera, who didn't have travel budgets. And back in the day, you sort of had people living out of their cars and going to see the greatest new sensation, right? But for the most part, sports is very well funded. Well, the model today is that most of the writers who used to be uh, have a travel budget, have health insurance, have a pension, that's all gone. So they're not even going to get to Jacob's Pillow. Or if they do, they're going to go see, they're going to go one night or whatever. So there's a disconnect um, between the talent in the United States and what's written about and what's funded. Because if it's not written about, it is not going to be funded. Uh, I love the fact that you're, you're, that this is mission driven work for you, not just as an artist, but as, as a, uh, a lover of the arts and as a promoter of the arts. And it sounds like as a scholar of what's going on in, in, in the arts, it sounds like the point you're making is that the same kind of polarization that's happening with, you know, billionaires and zillionaires getting richer and richer and richer. By the way, the same is happening with, you know, what's happening right now in the business world is a frenzy of mergers and acquisitions, right? So consolidation, consolidation, there's usually also some kind of um, countervailing trend, but less so these days. You know, it's sort of like climate change. There's not a countervailing trend where, oh, also the climate's getting better. And, you know, polarization of wealth. No, that's not, there's not a countervailing trend. You know, entrepreneurship is happening, but it's small usually unless they get bought up by the billionaires. And it sounds like the same thing. And I did not realize this, or I guess now that you say it, it makes sense. But I don't, I don't think I realized that was happening in the arts. I'll tell you, in our little community here in New Haven, we have the Yale School of Drama, which is considered a pretty important place. And, you know, we, um, and we love the, the little theater in the basement, uh, the cabaret, because it's experimental theater uh, and the students get to run it. And, you know, and there were local people who felt great about supporting it. It's theater of the oppressed and shows people of different backgrounds and orientations. And well, David Geffen just gave them $150 million. So guess what? They don't need us anymore. Not, you know, so it's just so interesting uh, is exploring these issues. That's really your mission. If, if, if I were all-knowing and in starting this out from my kitchen table in 2015, um, I knew where I was going to go. I could, I could pretend, I could front that I did, but I'm going to be honest and say, while we, are, while we have not changed our mission, what is being revealed to me has changed how we approach it. 
So if you're dealing with, and then I do a lot of reading around it in both in philanthropy and culture, and you know, you start realizing that these are there are trends. And I will just make a really bald statement, which is philanthropy is lazy. And while they use much of the language of business, and the business of philanthropy has grown exponentially with so many advisors and advisors to the advisors, right? There's the not-for-profit on not-for-profits. I mean, it's getting almost like Kafka. It is fundamentally an incredibly lazy sector. And while people constantly discuss paradigm shifting and excel, you know, they use all these very aggressive sort of macho terminology, but nobody does much of anything. And that is because everybody wants to hang on to their job. And also because there's a revolving door between, for example, the foundation officer and then the person who is running the opera or the company. They move in and out of the revolving doors, kind of like K Street lobbyists, right? And lower level staff has seen, you know, the new CEO comes in breathing fire and we're going to change everything and paradigm shift and blow things up. And they've seen it a hundred times and they've seen, there are a thousand strategic plans sitting on the shelf. So what I've noticed is they sit in place quietly and paddle quietly along and mouth whatever the, you know, the five words du jour are, and they just wait for that person to leave and they carry on doing whatever it is they've been doing before. The problem is that the incentive model, I think at almost every level of philanthropy, is to stop dead in your tracks and continue the status quo. And the problem with that is that the programming itself becomes mired. And the reason is, and and this is not true of everybody, but the reason is you have development officers, the senior development officers often sit in on strategic planning meetings. What most folks don't realize outside of philanthropy is your chief development officer eats what he or she kills. So just like in business, where instead of looking at developing long-term, sitting in a garage with your buddy and devoting a huge amount of time to R&D, you want next quarter's return. So you want, so you're going to focus, Bruce, on the 10, 20, or 40 old donors who are about ready to leave an estate gift. Because if they do that on your watch, you, you get a bigger bonus. So think about what happens. You have an organization that is doing well doing X. Let's call it the Nutcracker or AIDA or, you know, whatever, whatever it is, the planning, the, the show that everybody knows and loves. And the big donors tend to be 70-year-old or 80-year-old or in the performing arts area. They're going to give you three, four, five million dollars. You get to take that and go home with that. The problem is you're not recruiting new audiences you're not creating that next gen. And so the focus on the immediate return, I would argue is very similar philanthropy to business. Well, yeah, and to your point, I mean, I've, we served on the board of the El Cabaret for many years, my wife and I both did. And, uh, and it was so interesting because the students would come in because it was a theater they ran, they, they did everything. So it's, it's just a, a incredible, from a pedagogical standpoint, it's an incredible laboratory um, uh, for theater. But what would often happen is there would be voices at the table who would say, well, who's going to come see that? Uh, you know, there, there might have been an answer, but it was it was not the people who came last year. You know, it was not all the grownups, basically, that if, if it were something really challenging, uh, then we'd have to just assume there wasn't going to be much of an audience for it. 
I, so I think that's another, that actually had an effect on program. Of course it does. And then you get something like Hamilton. If you, if you just looked at it, you'd be like, why would I want to finance this? This is never going to happen. This is never going to work. And then it takes off. And so all the Broadway producers are chasing the next Hamilton. That's a really, that's a great example because yeah, who would have thought? And yet it's, I mean, for one thing, it's so good, but for another thing, right. Like, you know, on the other, at the beginning of that, you could see there might've been a lot of skepticism about that. But he had already done in the Heights. Right. So, so there was more of a potential, but I mean, whether it's Broadway producers or the ballet or the opera, it's very similar to the entertainment industry, right? Everybody wants to invest in the next big thing, but I do see it in, I do see it sadly, I think in business. And you were talking about, there's a few tiny people out there scrapping it out. All the terminology is about grow, 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 and, and get yourself ready to be bought out instead of just running your business and making it, a better business, right? And investing. So instead of having 85 bakeries, you're going to hang with your three bakeries and do a great job. That's not deemed to me, I, and this is your area, but that's not deemed a success to me. Well, I guess success is in the eye of the beholder. Uh, we are here with Liza Eintema, president and founder of the Dance Data Project. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, uh, I want to ask Liza how they go about executing on their mission uh, but I really want to understand this uh, genius, indispensable go-to person uh, behind this mission. We'll be right back. Hello, everyone. This is Mark Plingsheim with the Motivated to Lead podcast. Each week, we interview leaders and they share lessons learned from their careers. Our goal is to help you become a better leader. Bruce has been a guest on our show and he shared some great content. And each week we interview uh, people like Bruce who uh, bring some, some great information to help you grow as a leader. If you're enjoying this show, I think you'd enjoy Motivated to Lead. You can subscribe or listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this show. Looking forward to having you join us at Motivated to Lead. Okay, we're back with Liza Eintema, president and founder of the Dance Data Project. Um, uh, so Liza, can you explain, like day to day, how do you uh, and your team execute on your mission? We were, we were essentially told this is never going to work, which I thought was hysterical. We were at a, um, I won't say where, but we were at a, a large cultural institution and the development director, literally her jaw dropped and her eyes rolled because it's like, well, you can't do that. We are uh, by design, at least for now, all remote and all part-time. I have an incredibly dedicated, very young staff, partially because I exist on a tiny, tiny budget. People would be, I think, stunned if they realized how small it was. We have um, relied on super, super smart people, mostly gals, but not all. Everybody working from different parts of the country. So we have people in Seattle. We have people in New York, Nashville, Tennessee, down in Florida, a couple of folks in Chicago. But because of the pandemic, mostly haven't seen them. Um, I will say, though, before the pandemic, our, our model got laughed at until it didn't. But there was a very prescient um, dean at Harris School of Public Policy, God bless him, and we were having lunch, and I sort of said, you know, look, people are literally laughing at me, and he started laughing himself, and he said, are you kidding? Yours is the model of the future for not-for-profits. 
as folks get smarter about and learn more about putting their money into places, the days of, you know, the big marble lobby and the fancy titles and offices are going to be gone. At least that's his premise, because those of us who are going to survive and get things done have to run much more entrepreneurial and as a startup. It takes, um, I was I was reading your book, I actually found it super, super useful. It takes a huge amount of communication, but we don't have a lot of meetings, if that makes sense. Um, you have to super carefully delineate responsibilities. You cannot assume anything's been done, but my people get a ton of autonomy. And we also take people very seriously. I had three high school interns who were churning out extraordinary research. So there's a lot of talent out there waiting to be deployed. I think people are very passionate about what I do, which is gender equity, and then within gender equity, performing arts, and then within that, the very, very rigid world of ballet. But there are hundreds of thousands of little girls around the world who go off to class every week, maybe every day. So I have I have a built-in labor pool. And I grew up with the idea that ballet dancers are kind of airheads, right? Because that's that's sort of the scene and not, you know, they're the muse, but they never get to talk. And I will tell you, there are an extraordinary number of physics dance, math dance, computer science dance, college kids out there who are so smart. Um, I have a couple of, I have three Phi Beta Kappas who work for me, which is very funny because... Um, my dad was uh, a math professor, but I'm hopeless at it. Um, I was an English major. But what it shows you is if you're willing to dig in and do the work and ask common sense questions, almost anything is possible. Yeah, well, I mean, my view is strong body, strong mind. They go very well together. Spirit helps too. And Liza, can you, can you just say a little more about how – so you use metrics – uh, in order to try to drive gender equity and in particular into the world of dance. And how do you use, how do you do that? So you gather the metrics, you, you analyze, you, uh, you generate metrics and how do you use that in order to try to drive gender equity? So the original theory of change, you know, which is what you're all supposed to have when you start a not-for-profit is why is your approach going to work? The idea was that nobody was gathering the data. It enabled a lot of people who were very comfortable continuing in their old ways, which is mostly white, almost exclusively male leadership of ballet companies, but also let's just let's just say large cultural institutions writ large. So that can be museums, theaters, whatever. Um, very happy kind of pedaling along the way they were, giving money to their buddies, giving commissions out. Because by the way, when you're in a position this big, you are your own little economic sun around which planets orbit. So you are trawling in jobs. It's like being a ward committeeman in Chicago. It's abundanza, right? I mean, you're you're giving out jobs and, you know, Louis brother's cousin, right? So that happens a lot in the ballet and the museum and the other worlds, right? There's why do we get so many mediocre people? Well, because Louis' cousin's brother, um, you know. Anyway, so... There was, it was very easy to continue to deny there was a problem. There'd be, there'd be a level of interest in New York Times, Washington Post, somebody else would comment on it, and then it would disappear. And it was because nobody had the numbers. So I naively thought, all right, we're going to start 
gathering the numbers first, a uh, number of choreographic commissions, and then pushing it out to artistic and executive leadership, showing the pay levels. And then as we've continued longitudinally, you can look back, you can look forward. We now have five or six years data. As stunning as the data is, what I overestimated is people's appetite for change or willingness to change. And that's where we've had to pivot a little bit, slightly, our logos slightly change research plus advocacy equals equity. So now we try and use those numbers to advocate for change. And any suggestions you have or your readers, your listeners have would be most welcome uh, because there are a lot, not a lot of entry points. And this goes back to our earlier conversation. Who gets to make the decisions? And I'm sure that you see this with banks and enterprises, you know, startups, et cetera. Um, there's only a few people in the room and you don't necessarily know who those people are or how they're making the decisions. So right now we are at a huge breaking point in the ballet world because so many long-term, I mean, 30, 40, 50 year artistic directors are retiring. So there's a huge opportunity outside of getting our numbers out there any way we can. We're also writing op-eds. So this is a real thing. This is a real story, just to tell you a story. Um, the Pennsylvania Ballet was started by this hugely entrepreneurial and interesting woman, Barbara Weisberger. And usually when ballet companies get bigger, they fire the female founding artistic director or the board of directors will say, well, we need a genius. And as you probably know, if you say genius, it's 90% of the time it's going to be a guy. And so when a company gets bigger to hire a prestige candidate, they look to a guy. We wrote a op-ed that was published in the Philadelphia Inquirer because they're celebrating, I think, their 50th anniversary in honor of their female artistic director, I'm sorry, founder. And you can't make this stuff up. Three programs 11 choreographers, guess how many female choreographers? I mean, I guess I'm going to guess zero. Correct. A tribute to great, I, I forget, it was beauty, grace, resiliency, or whatever. Not a female choreographer. So we usually, I don't like, quote, calling people out. I don't think it's useful. We can talk about my model, which is collaborate, collaborate, praise as much as possible. Uh, but we couldn't let this one go. We actually named all the corporate sponsors that were underwriting the season because it's like, you can't tell me that these three insurance companies, these two hotel chains, these five law firms don't have DE&I initiatives and aren't being pushed to hire more women. So why are they supporting an all-male artistic season? And, and to turn back, that translates, by the way, Bruce, into money. It translates into job opportunities because you're not just hiring, right, the choreographer. You're hiring the set, costume, lighting designers. You're hiring all the support personnel. So there's probably 20 jobs you're bringing in there, right? Absolutely. And, um, of course, that's how the arts community works. And uh, every project uh, needs its uh, team and its extended team. And did you get... A proper uptake uh, from media sources on that data? And did it have an effect? So thank you, Business Press. Thank you, Wall Street Journal. Thank you, Forbes. Thank you, you know, so many business publications that have actually helped us. I think I think you have a Forbes column, but your, your colleague, yeah. Kim, Kim Lesser, bless her soul, 
first person on a national level to, to pick up our story and, and go, wait, this doesn't make sense. Dance press, dance critics, arts critics, absolutely not. And I'll give you a particularly shocking example. So New York City Ballet, by far the largest and probably the most prestigious ballet company in the United States, run for a long time, started, you know, Balanchine was the guy, but one of his successors, Peter Martins, resigned January 1st, 2018, multiple allegations of toxic culture, DUIs, beating his wife, who is a dancer, uh, internal investigation, not published, found no substantiation for it, but he resigned anyway. We found by looking at the 990s um, and reported just about a month ago, they were continuing to pay him in, under various guises, literally in different places on the tax form, close to a million dollars a year in salary, which is, I think, 40% that more than the next in line number two guy at San Francisco Ballet, about which there have been no at least personal scandals. The current artistic director there and the current associate artistic director are variously making less than 400000 and the other salary wasn't reported. So for three years, they've been paying this guy that supposedly resigned close to a million dollars a year. And then this year, I think 660,000. Is it a severance package? Is that what it is? We don't know. Again, complete lack of transparency. But, you know, the company was hugely traumatized. The dancers were traumatized. There was this whole, okay, um, a speech from the stage. We're starting a new era. None of the dancers as far as we can tell, knew that this was still going on. I don't think most of the donors knew this was going on. Sure, probably it was a severance package, but why not be transparent? Why not say you're doing this? Yeah, and don't, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm just trying to understand. I'm not saying, oh, that's great that they gave this uh, jerk a, a, such a generous severance package. We published the data and we didn't do any editorializing because that's inappropriate and got zero pickup except for Dance Magazine. So New York Times, Washington Post, who have been covering, and you can just Google New York City. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I think the Times, of course, was covering that. The Times is covering it. Multiple reporters there were covering it. Zero pickup. So I don't I don't know. I mean, I, I would argue that um, business publications have been much more open and willing to cover these issues around the arts. And one of, one of the things that when I, when I ask writers, editors who have quoted us in their books, and we've gotten a fair amount of uptake from them, they said, well, Liza, assignment editors are not interested in language. And the other problem is that those who write about dance write as dance critics, and they are terrified of numbers. They don't know how to read a 990, and it's not their skill set they're going to run from those stories back to a performance review. But to me, whether it's opera, theater, dance, any of the performing arts, museums, visual arts, if you're not reporting on these economic issues, if you're not reporting on the culture of the institution, to me, you're missing the essential story, particularly after so many frontline workers who make minimum wage were, were furloughed during the pandemic while the curators and the senior staff kept their jobs. I'm still working out how we're going to address this, but one of the things that I'm interested in doing is um, helping teach a course on the performing arts, show how important it is economically, but also teach those who are going to be covering it how to read a spreadsheet. I mean, if I can learn, and I'm no math genius, if I can learn, if I can figure out how to navigate through a 990, anybody can. 
Yeah, and it's it's true. I mean, I I know from my limited experience um, uh, being on a board that there was always somebody at the table who could re read financial documents, and everyone else would be sort of like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> you know, they yes. Oh my God, yes. And that's such a problem because I've sat in those board meetings and budgets get rubber stamped, and it's like, "What are you smoking?" It's like, wait a minute, you didn't make your budget last year. There was a Hail Mary, like, twist the arms for the board of directors. People, this is not sustainable. So so you're gathering data. Do you keep that in mind as you're analyzing it and finding ways to put it into the public sphere, get attention for these findings that you're uncovering? You're putting scrutiny uh, on the industry, trying to create transparency. But do you take that into account when you promote the, your findings, put it in ways that are understandable. So, you know, at, at the beginning of this series of questions, you would ask me sort of explain you, explain how you work, explain how your life experiences got you here. One of the things that I did uh, for a while, it was a really fun job, is I worked for the Chamber of Commerce for the Chicagoland area. I was their head of governmental affairs. Um, but I also started analyzing budgets. And again, English major here, you know, no experience. Well, but you're also a lawyer. Let's uh, let's be clear. I am a lawyer, you know, and I have that sort of rabid chihuahua hanging on to the ankle kind of attitude. And I started looking into the city of Chicago's budgets and they have a number of different pots. And I started um, looking at the budget that controls O'Hare Airport, which is the biggest, juiciest like prize out there. And we started uncovering some amazing stuff to the point that I was told to be very, very careful, quote unquote, implication being, don't push this too hard. Well, yeah, implication being, be careful because your, your safety might be at stake. Yeah, that, that was actually truly the implication. And if you knew the person with whom I was speaking, um, very much an insider and very much part of the machine. But anyway, you know, if you just keep digging, you can find stuff out. And so when it came time to do Dan's data project, um, you know, we kept digging and digging and digging. And let me just throw in a good word for ProPublica here, because GuideStar is quite expensive, but ProPublica does this as a service, which allows us to save huge amounts of money. But your point is well taken, because mostly people's eyes roll, right? So you have to make the story interesting. So we produced these big long, um, big long reports, carefully checked, and you had asked me how we operate. One of my rules is everybody edits everybody. It is a golden circle. We are all on the same level. I have to make the final call, but I make mistakes. Everybody else makes mistakes. Everybody proofs everybody, and because that's the only way a tiny organization like ours is going to turn out first-rate material and gain credibility, which is the other big challenge. Who are you? Why should we care what you say? But to your point, we've started producing data bytes, which are sort of shorter little morsels, right? Much less text, just three or four really usable points because most journalists aren't as, and you're an author, so it makes you different, are not as willing to go in depth. And we have to produce material. We have to have a really easy to navigate website, you have to, we have to put in the headline, the three or four critical points. So somebody who's on deadline, if they do get interested in what's going on in ballet, in dance and performing arts can go right to it. 
That's super important. I'm, uh, and um, I mean, are, is the Journal of Philanthropy paying attention to what you're doing? So there's there's two different publications. Uh, it, the the not for profit quarterly. Uh, well, actually, there's three. They, <laughs> how do I put this politely? They are very very institutional, and they like to write big long form stories, but performing arts not necessarily their first interest, and we're sort of upstarts. And there is a huge huge bias in the institutional philanthropic world for the people you know to the point we we're talking about it earlier and big 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 um interestingly inside philanthropy which i think would appeal to you a lot more much more readable short form stuff that is there they they do a lot of great reporting have a lot of great writers but they're they're taking they're taking three steps back and looking at trends much more i don't know jaundiced I would say much less flattering viewpoint. They attack controversies. They, you know, things like toxic gifts and, you know, like Sackler, Epstein, et cetera. Um, and they also take really good looks at things like educational giving. One of the things when I talk about how to give, it's why are you going to give a stadium? Even if you can give a stadium, does Harvard, does Yale really need a stadium? To your point about um, Yale School of Drama. Why not give it to a historically black college where it's going to do a huge amount of good, right? So their inside philanthropy is, I find, much more useful um, than the Chronicle of Philanthropy, for example. But 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 the 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 journalists who cover philanthropy per se, some of them are paying attention to what you're doing. Um. Yeah. It, it, the, the 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 biggest notice that we've gotten is. Um, <laughs> the way I know we're making a difference is people are changing their programming. They, it may not be equitable, but people now know that we are there and we're doing the work. Um, and so we are seeing change. It's not the big yummy. It's uh, to put it in film terms. Um, it's much more the smaller indie films that, that women get to direct or, or um, documentaries. Uh, but instead of being, zero women, you're starting to see one woman on a program of three, one woman on a program of five, and then every once in a while, a breakout um, where a woman gets a world premiere main stage. So people know we're out there. Uh, people know we're keeping track. Um, so we are, started, we are starting to see some change. What I would really like to do is somehow get into the boardrooms of these companies and say, it makes economic sense. I mean, I'm sure you've had a million guests on talking about how diverse teams are better and teams with women on them are better. It makes economic sense if you want this art form, if you want this company to thrive, to start bringing forward some voices of women. But I'm what I'm desperately afraid of, Bruce, is that post-pandemic, everybody runs to the safest thing, at least in the performing arts. I don't know if it's happening in business, but well, let's do the thing everybody likes so they'll go back to the theater and we can start to fund ourselves. I, I agree with you that people are, are uh, trying to be risk averse. The question is, is it a bigger risk to fail to include uh, women and to fail to pursue gender equity um, as an arts institution? Is it a bigger risk to fail to uh, pursue gender equity as um, an arts philanthropist? And I think you're making a good argument for uh, that being a risk in and of itself. I mean, look, we 
are in an environment where people are being called out for their failures on matters like this. And nobody wants to be called out on that. And we're also in an environment where a lot of decision makers are seeing that equity in various forms, diversity, equity, and inclusion are make a lot of business sense. I mean, they make sense, not just in, so, I, I mean, I call fifth generation diversity thinking where, in fact, uh, you need to be diverse and inclusive in order to generate innovation, real innovation. But unless you're at the New York City Ballet, I mean, let's face it, some percentage of the people who attend arts performances are the friends and family of the performers, the friends and family of the crew, the friends and family of the people involved. And so, you know, if you can be in a downward spiral, that may be why audiences are downward spiraling. I suspect that's that's part of what you're seeing. Let's go back to Hamilton. If you don't if you don't see anybody on stage who looks like you, it's much harder to translate the story. And by showing Latino and black founding fathers, it completely I mean, it revolutionized me and I'm, you know, white suburban lady. And, and of course, the fact that it was brilliant and it was excellent really, really helped too. But I will say, I mean, you know, Shakespeare Theater, I'm on the board here in Chicago and they've gotten a number of productions on Broadway. Um, my first black Hamlet, my first black Romeo and Juliet. Um, and I think seeing it really makes a difference. Part of the problem is until you can see it, for a lot of people, you can't imagine it. But it's, you know, look, Bruce, it's a conundrum. Why don't more private equity firms hire women? Why don't more financial advisors hire women? I mean, you and I both know that the big generational transfer of wealth is going mostly to women. One of the biggest points I make, and I actually came up with a little hashtag, ask before you give, when I talk to women about their philanthropy is, it's okay to ask questions. The moment before you hand over the check, you know, you probably know this from negotiation yourself is your moment, moment of greatest power. How are you going to use this? What are you going to, you know, what are the reports you're going to send back to me? I, I really think we need to educate donors to feel empowered to say, I'm going to do this, but you and I really have to talk about what the metrics look like. And here's the change I expect to see. I think a lot of people don't know they can even do that. Yeah, I'll tell you this. Uh, it's also the case that the biggest uh wealthiest institutions are the ones who will push back the most on that kind of scrutiny. So, gee, maybe you need to find institutions that are more uh, willing to engage with you. And my biggest takeaway from this is realizing this: how much there's a polarization in resources and action in the arts world. And of course, now that you say it, it's like hiding in plain sight. But I'm so glad you're shining a bright light on it. And and I want to, uh, uh, as we uh, move toward the close, I want to say, it sounds like you're uh, got a tremendous amount of energy and energy, I think, is an asset uh, no matter what you do. It sounds like you're uh, deeply mission driven. I love that. I love the way you describe that your team is virtual uh, and that your team is all about collaboration you wear your values and your energy and your mission on your sleeve, which is, which is, uh, says a lot. If somebody's listening to this and saying, wow, Liza's my new hero. How can I be like her? 
Um, what's your sort of takeaway advice for people? Oh boy, isn't that that's lovely? Um, I don't think I'm anybody's hero. So I want to turn it back to you and your book and something that you said, which which really resonated with me. Okay, and it's you know, 62, 63 year old housewife. I literally stood sat in front of somebody um, who said, "Why should anybody believe you?" Or another very well known philanthropist in Chicago. Um, who do you think you are? And the only response to that, other than accurate data, is listen, listen, listen to the people that you're trying to serve. And and you had a bunch of stuff on that in your book, and I'm trying to find my notes on it. Um, And you said it in four or five different ways, like align, et cetera. But we have had some success because I deeply listen. I, I like you, like listening to people's stories. So during the pandemic, you know, we found out that people literally, you know, going without the rent, et cetera, we shoved out resources. Um, A lot of the women choreographers that we talked to um, had to look in 15 different places to find a grant. And am I, am I eligible? So we put that all in one place and we ran a banner headline across the homepage um, because I got my kids through school applications and they had to be reminded. So use every single little bit of things that you've learned in life and then listen really hard. We put something out. If it works, great. If we double down, if it doesn't work, okay, don't be embarrassed, you know, pull back, try something new. And I think that's how we've managed, for example, to turn out 14 reports in a year and a half, plus three mini reports, 50 interviews, eight different resources is we just listen super hard to anybody that wants to talk to us. So listen super hard. That is a great piece of advice for anyone. Liza Eintema, president and founder of the Dance Data Project, driving gender equity into the arts and into dance in particular, using metrics and data. I love it. Thank you so much for being a guest on The Indispensables. Thank you so much, Bruce. It's been such an honor and I actually have been through the book twice. That's 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 so kind of you. And uh, um, thank you. Thank you so much. In our next episode, I'll talk with Alyssa Rapp, who is the CEO of a company called Surgical Solutions. She's also the author of Leadership and Life Hacks with Forbes Books. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto underscore podcast. That's at goto underscore podcast. Learn more about GoToism in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com. Until next time, stay strong and stay indispensable.